You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Bank stocks retreat as the Fed announces it will not extend pandemic-era capital requirements exemptions. The Nasdaq composite advances as yield spreads stabilize and oil recovers from yesterday's sell-off. We discuss all that and more today with Ed Harrison and Jack Farley. Welcome, gentlemen. Thanks, Ash. Good to be here. Great to be here, Ash. Lots going on. Let's jump right in. Ed, what's on your mind this Friday afternoon? Yeah, I'm just looking at my screen now. And, uh, you know, actually what's on my mind is that I know that Jack has a number of things that he wants to look at. Some of the things that you just mentioned also on my mind um, is the reflation trade. Why was oil down so much yesterday? That's uh, those and, and whether or not the third wave in Europe has any significance in all of that. So those are the kinds of things I'm thinking about right now. Jack, right over to you as Ed pitches it. What's on your mind? Uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks, Ash. Well, as Ed mentioned, yesterday's uh, sell-off in oil really was quite massive. Um, I've got a chart, which, which I call the oil dump. It's of the daily change, not in terms of the percentage, but in terms of the dollar amount of the WTI and the Brent. Um, and it's the biggest change since oil went negative in April. If you, if you extend the chart to April, uh, then everything goes really small. But um, right. Yeah, it sold off almost five dollars. Uh, so it really was a, a tremendous sell-off. And then if you if you go to um, the second chart that we've got, the Energy Select Sector SPDR fund, the weekly change, um, it had been having a really good streak uh, from that first week of February. It was up six weeks in a row, but then uh, this week it's down six percent uh, as a result of that sell-off in oil. To what do we attribute to? As Ed mentioned, the slowdown in Europe. Uh, pause in the reflation trade. Who knows? I mean, I, I was reading a report today that said uh, that it really is all about supply, that there's basically 8 million barrels of oil that OPEC is uh, holding back from the market. But if that were, Ash, to uh, go on the market, prices would slump really quickly. I also was reading another report that said that it, it surveyed, about, I think, about 15 uh, oil companies, major companies, and they said if with prices at the, where they are at $60 about now, 12 out of those 15 would be trading at um, uh, one times debt to EBITDA. But if oil were, I think, below $40, only one would be trading at, at net debt to EBITDA. So I think that these uh, oil companies are extremely sensitive to the price of oil, e even um, as you know Warren Buffett would be quick to point out. And Warren Buffett is pretty much as far from a macro guy as you get. So uh, yeah, that's mm. on my radar. Well, you know, uh, Ed, Jack gives us the CFA level analysis. Break it down for us. Tell us about the big picture. Explain what that means, particularly in regard to the reflation trade and price levels. Yeah, uh, I was uh, thinking about what he was saying and uh, trying to bucket it into different groups. Let me just say also, by the way, Pierre Andoran, uh, that was the video that we had today. I'm only halfway through it myself. I thought it was really good. This is also on oil. He was talking about big moves that he saw. I'm thinking like the $147 oil. He uh, 
He was a big believer in peak oil. But then, you know, it went from 147 to 32 in the same year. And he said he got both sides of that trade. He got the trade from 100 down to 32. Great video in terms of understanding, you know, how to trade and, you know, getting a much better understanding of this particular market. So that's really in the back of my mind as I break down what Jack was talking about. I think that there are three different ways to think about it. One is rates. The second, I would say, is technicals. And the third is reflation uh, with regard to uh, Europe in particular. So yeah. let me take those one at a time. Uh, first, let's go to the technicals. Really, you know, oil's run up a lot. When we think about uh, the value trade, when we think about growth versus value, value, you know, is dominated by energy uh, and financials. So when we've seen this rebalancing, you know, uh, it was actually a year ago that growth over value was at its peak. Uh, we're at a much different place now. Value's been really running up. Oil in particular, oil companies have been running up since September time frame. You know, you could say that just it's time to take a breather, that this is just a, 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 a technical sort of um, give back and that we're going to be off to the races again. I, I don't have a view. I just think that that's one thing that's potentially in the market. Second thing is that maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves. Uh, you know, the way that I've been saying it is that we have the reflation trade, and then now we're starting to think about what happens after we get to the full reopening post-vaccine. Uh, perhaps, actually, people are saying, hold on, you know, it's not really all uh, roses and puppy dogs. Really, what's going to happen at some point is there's going to be a hiccup, and this thing in Europe is telling us that there's a hiccup already, uh, you know, let's uh, let's take some some stuff off the table just in case. So that's that's uh, story number three. That's the the second thing I'm hearing in the markets. The third thing that I'm hearing people talk about is rates. Basically, that the rate regime that we're in, which is rising quickly in terms of that spread, we're getting to levels that are going to break something. So I think the, the number that I'm hearing is 2%, uh, and 2% is consistent with a 10% correction in equities, but also in terms of a material uh, tightening of financial conditions that would potentially be negative for commodities uh, as well as everything else. So those are the three different stories. Uh, pick your narrative. Uh, it's just one day's uh, trading, but uh, those are, that's what I'm hearing in the markets. Yeah. Jack, I imagine you have some thoughts on that. Yeah, well, I want to uh, choose door number three with what Ed talked about, which is rates. Uh, Ash, as you know, as we were actually talking about before, it's so easy to get caught, caught up in, oh, uh, rates surged yesterday. Now they've leveled off. They've retreated from their highs. Um, but actually, if you look at the, the, the weekly change, and this is a chart I have, um, uh, Ten-year yields have risen seven weeks in a row, um, and that is really significant. I, I actually think, and I'm not quite sure that this is the data, so don't uh, take me to the bank, pun intended. But um, uh, the last time I think that Treasury ten-year yields rose seven weeks in a row was, I believe, April 2009. So this is just screaming recovery, recovery, recovery. Uh, the question is, is that actually going to to materialize? 
Yeah, yeah for me, it's it's like the Goldilocks uh, is uh, not seven weeks in a row of rising and then continuing on. It's seven weeks of, uh, of rising and then sort of a flatlining or, you know, um, uh, you know, a stabilization, uh, and which is as effectively what we saw in 2009. Eventually, uh, the rates stabilized. You know, we had the steepening, but we, we got back into a, a better scenario. But I do think that, yeah, if we get to 2%, then that's a level, which is 27 basis points from where we are now, that is not good, not good for the mortgage market. It's not good for uh, energy. It's not good for financial conditions. It just in general, uh, it's, it's going up too quickly. Yeah. And of course, the 2% number you're talking about is on the US 10-year yield. Big picture, uh, if you're not following this day by day, tick by tick, is that rates on the 10-year and across the complex have been on an extraordinary run, starting out at about 50 basis points in August of 2020 and running up to where we are right now on the US 10, about 1.73%. That's almost 130 bips. It's been a really steep rise. Yeah, it's uh, it's 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 a lot. I uh, I don't have the historicals, but my understanding is that this is one of the most historic uh, rises, certainly from a percentage perspective, but even from an absolute uh, number of uh, basis points perspective, relative to where we began that fifty level that you're talking about. You know, running up on the ten year, one hundred and twenty basis points in less than uh, seven months. That's that's pretty. Uh, that's that's a lot. Yeah, and you hit on, I think, the two key points about the, the change here is that, number one, it's the speed of the rise, and number two, on a percentage basis, this is really extraordinary, 120 basis points, a lot more uh, when you're down at 50 bips on a percentage basis uh, than when you're at, say, 7%. And remember, we're talking about convexity, right? Because the, the when you're down at 50 basis points, you have massive convexity, so going up to 170 realistically is a much bigger tightening. I don't know who it was who I spoke to recently, but they were talking about 50 basis points being the equivalent of 200 basis points, you know, if it's at 5%. I don't know if that's a legitimate comparison, but that, that's an interesting way of looking at it. But and we know curious, it's more. <laughs> yeah, hey, was, that, was that Larry McDonald who said that? Yes, actually, you're yeah. right. It was Larry McDonald. Yes, yeah. that's who it is. Nice. Well, well, Ed, you mentioned that this the, uh, rise in rate over the past few months has been uh, truly historic. I actually think if you look at the uh, five-week change, or maybe it's the, the six or seven-week change, it is the most in terms of percentage terms since at least 1980. It's possible it's since ever. I just haven't gone, gone back that far. Uh, and again, if I'm wrong, I'll, I'll post in the comments. Um, but it, it is exactly what you said. That's in percentage terms. In terms of uh, absolute number of basis points, it probably uh, isn't because you know going from 17 to, to 16 isn't nearly as big, or, uh, or going from 16 to 17 isn't nearly as big as going from one to two. Um, you know, going from 0.01 .01 to 0 0.02 is technically a, an 100% increase, but going from 10 to 10.01 is basically a rounding error. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. 
Yeah, you know, what I would say is that uh, a lot of people are looking for parallels uh, in terms of uh, historical parallels. Let me just throw a few out there. Uh, one uh, that people talk about is the taper tantrum. Another yeah. that I talk about a decent amount is uh, 2018. But I would throw a third out there, which is uh, 1994. I think, you know, the, I remember specifically a lot of people, friends of mine who were in the markets back then, uh, that there was enough carnage in government bonds after the, the first jobless recession with the, you know, the Fed moving things higher that people were losing jobs left and right. I can't remember the specifics anymore now, but you know, uh, some people rescinded their uh, their incoming analyst class or something like that, and uh, you know, uh, associates were getting fired at uh, at money center banks. Uh, it was a real. It was a lot of carnage, and people were talking about whether or not the recession was going to come as a result of that. We almost ended up with an inverted yield curve at some point in time. But fast forward to today, it's a completely different story that really, um, you know, if you think about back then, the yield curve inverted because, you know, it was the short end of the curve that was going up and the long end wasn't responding as much. Now we're talking about a massive steepening in the curve. And so, you know, I think that it's difficult to, to decide what historical precedent is the best in order to think about what that means for the economy and also for markets. But I'm still on the on the look lookout for that. I think the steepening aspect of it is the most critical part. Yeah, you know, the 1994 bond market crisis, the great bond massacre, I remember it well. I was in college, it was like a preppy kid apocalypse. All these uh, young guys and gals who wanted to go to work on Wall Street were wondering whether those jobs uh, were going to be there for them. Uh, and to put this in context, I just did the back of the envelope math. It looks like about 60 basis points rise in yield on the U.S. 10 uh, since around the, the, this, the, the trajectory started steepening uh, around February 11th. So here we are. It's about five weeks, 60 basis points. Pretty significant gains. Yeah, definitely. And now the interesting bit, as I've been saying for some time now, um, you know, everyone's tilted onto the other, onto one side of the boat. You know, that's a really crowded trade, this trade going up. Uh, I think it's interesting uh, if you think about commodities, oil in particular, as being a macro proxy. You know, so to the degree that that sell-off in oil says anything from a macro perspective, it would be saying that actually, hang on, uh, that you need to think about hedging on the other side. You know, everyone's tilted to the one side saying that uh, inflation, inflation rates up, uh, you know, recovery. But actually, maybe that's not the real story. Uh, you need to think about a, a whipsawing in, in the other direction. So I think the European a COVID crisis, you know, third wave in Europe right now is something uh, that is uh, interesting in that respect, especially to the degree that it could happen in the United States as well. Uh, probably on a lesser basis, but you know we're not out of the woods 100 percent. Yeah, and I would also add to that Brazil, uh, where the crisis is rising. I'm hearing anecdotally some terrifying stories coming out of Brazil in the news stories uh, as well. Very frightening in terms of ICU rates uh, being effectively uh, packed and unable to treat the number of patients uh, who are ill. It's a very scary situation, and one gets the sense that perhaps uh, we've, you know, 
declared victory prematurely here. Uh, you know, people's parents are getting uh, the vaccine here in the U.S. It's wonderful news, uh, but it's a big world. The disease can continue to spread, and if it continues to spread, the risk, of course, is mutation. And mutation means it's possible, possible, we don't yet know, uh, that the vaccine can be less effective against mutated strains. And there's some evidence to suggest that less efficacy is what is, in fact, happening in the field. You know, uh, when you mentioned Brazil, I think it's interesting because, and uh, let me get your uh, take on this, you and Jack. Um, I, for the first time, we're getting inklings of central banks raising interest rates. I would point out three central banks, the Brazilian central bank, uh, also Turkey's central bank. Uh, they've, they've already raised interest rates. And then you have the Norwegian central bank. Let me tell you how I'm thinking about it, and you tell me if you find that interesting at all. One is the, the dollar trade that people are talking about. Uh, you know, DXY, which is heavily euro-weighted, really, you know, if the rate regime that we're talking about now in the United States is going forward as it is, that puts a lot of stress on emerging markets, particularly the ones that are the weakest, that have, you know, the largest external imbalances like Brazil, like Turkey. So to me, it's interesting that they're raising rates. It could be a canary in the coal mine in terms of understanding breakages that are in the offing potentially going forward if we continue on this path. You know, the U.S. dollar being a global reserve currency and therefore the Federal Reserve being the world central bank on some level, you know, they transmit financial tightening uh, to the world through the dollar. And even though we may not be seeing as much tightening in the United States, we could be uh, seeing tightening elsewhere. But then at the same time, everyone's on easy street in the developed world. Norway's central bank, Norges Bank, they uh, are saying that they're going to raise rates at the end of 2021, this year, whereas the Fed told us that they're not going to raise it this year or next year and probably not the next year after that. So yeah. I think it's very interesting, given that Norway has a lot more flexibility given their external balances than a lot of the other developed countries. Do you think that's interesting at all, those three central banks moving in that direction, tightening uh, already? Um, I, I actually think it's incredibly interesting, Ed. And I would add a fourth, which is the Bank of Russia, the Central Bank of Russia, which raised the bank to 4.5%, much, much higher. So you're right that these countries that either are uh, in the developed world or sort of are on that periphery, um, what used to be called the second world, country, countries like Russia, they are really pumping up rates. Uh, and the traditional, let's say, neoclassical explanation for that would be that they want to attract capital because the capital flows in to um, uh, get that yield. Meanwhile, the United States is pretty much doing everything it can to keep rates low, but rates on the, on the middle and the belly of the curve and, and on the long end are selling off. So money is flowing in whether uh, Powell wants it or not. And that's why you've seen the dollar pick up just a little bit. I also would believe, Ed, uh, and I'm not sure, I'm, I'm pretty sure, but um, Russia, the, the uh, Russian ruble, the uh, um, uh, Turkish lira, the Brazilian real, and the Norwegian uh, uh, krona, I believe, are all not in the DXY. So when people on TV, or you know, this is TV, let's be honest, but when people on TV say, oh, the dollar is rallying, the dollar is so weak, it's relative to an extremely small subset of, of, um, of currencies, mainly the euro. And the reason is because the DXY was founded in the you know, 1970s, 1980s, and it used to be these, the franc and all these countries. But 
um, you know, the, if the Russian ruble de depreciates against the dollar 50%, no one really talks about it because it's not in the DXY. So I think it's extremely significant, Ed. Such yeah, a good point. you know, I, I'm looking at some of the uh, the charts here, and I see that uh, the the Brazilian real is taking a beating. Uh, it did. It is down to like five four eight uh, from uh, intermediate high uh, at uh, that was much higher. But perhaps that's why they actually, you know, uh, they were forced to raise rates. Now I'm looking at the Turkish lira, and the chart there shows the lira actually doing relatively well, but recently selling off. Um, I just think that it, when you say that it's not in DXY and that people are looking at DXY as the proxy, and I see DXY at 92, which is a relatively uh, big level for, for DXY now, it, it just reminds us that the financial condition tightening doesn't have to be in the United States. So when people talk about financial conditions tightening and breakages that are happening as a result of the the rate regime that the Fed is, is pumping out, it could be that it's it's somewhere that we're not expecting, uh, like emerging markets. Yeah, and if you look at the three-year chart of USD BRL, uh, the Brazilian real just getting pounded consistently over a long period of time. There's been some volatility uh, during the crisis, some ups and downs, but long term, dollar up, Brazilian real down. Yeah, and. Given that their their economy is on the um, you know is on the floor, it, that that's probably not a good thing that they have to raise rates. So something to to watch from my perspective uh, in terms of incipient financial condition tightening, not in the United States but elsewhere. Uh, I think uh, I will I'd be watching that more than anything else at this particular juncture, uh, if this goes to 2% on the 10-year. Yeah, Ed, that, that's a great point. And I'm glad that you really are in the weeds looking at Turkey, looking at Brazil, looking at Norway, which, again, are not represented in the dollar index. For example, I think that the Swedish krona is 3 or 4% of that dollar index, but the Chinese yuan is nowhere to be found. So I think it's, it's kind of like the dollar index is kind of like the Dow Jones, where you know, for some reason, the United Health Corporation is 7% of it. So when they have a bad earnings day, the Dow is down and suddenly everyone loses their mind. But really, it's kind of just around a it. it should be a rounding error, but it's not. Jack, so, that's a great point on why the yeah. uh, on DXY is misleading. Right, definitely. Yeah, you know, I wanted to change the topic for a second because I was looking at some of the things that Jack sent you and me earlier that he's uh, really uh, thinking about. He's thinking about banks and the SLR, and he's also thinking about quadruple witching. Uh, so these are some, some heavy topics. Uh, maybe we can get into, uh, you know, let, let's go into the quadruple witching first, Jack, because I think that that's, that's pretty exciting. Well, Ed, I, I wish I had more for you. Just for the people at home, the quadruple witching is uh, something that happens, I believe, four times a year when the expiration of uh, stock options, stock indexes, and um, excuse me, when, when, when futures and options on both the stock indexes and the single stocks expire all four days. So things can get quite crazy. Uh, I was looking into it a little bit today. And what I, I read a nice quote in something which said that quadruple witching, it often creates a lot of noise, but not a lot of single, uh, excuse me, not a lot of signal. So I think volumes were up today. Um, and you actually, volumes were quite low over the past four uh, weeks. Um, excuse me, over the past four days, I think a lot because of uncertainty. So people were sort of pausing, staying on the sidelines. But 
Yeah, volume increased today um, as it normally does. Generally, it's about 5% higher than the 50-day average or something, but um, not a lot of price action. So, But Ed, on the, on the SLR, on the banks, and the supplementary leverage ratio, uh, I do have quite a lot for you. So the supplementary leverage ratio is basically the American version of a bank capital ratio that was imposed by um, Basel III, I believe, uh, which was a global uh, uh, agreement to have banks uh, be a little bit more uh, cautious and not be leveraged 40 to 1, 50 to 1, like they were in the great financial crisis. So it basically is a ratio. And in the numerator, it is uh, tier, uh, uh, tier 1 assets, which include bank deposits, as well as common tier equity or, or stock. And in the denominator is uh, risk assets or, or total leverage exposure, including on-balance sheets and off-balance sheets. And last April, what the Federal Reserve did, because there was such illiquidity in the Treasury market, because the entire financial system was on the brink of collapse, so it appeared, um, they basically uh, provided a reprieve to banks saying, the Treasuries that you hold on your books, as well as the deposits that you have in the, with the Federal Reserve, they don't have to count in the denominator. So basically, um, the the banks over the past year, almost the past 11 months, have been kind of riding on easy street. So their uh, uh, SLRs, their supplementary leverage ratios, have been elevated and higher than they would be. Um, today, uh, the Federal Reserve announced that that so the, sorry, there was a lot of question about is this going to um, be extended because they expired on March 31st. Um, so it was announced today that the Federal Reserve is not extending that reprieve. Um, so you had a lot of action in, in the banks today. Yeah, uh, banks were down uh, today on that news. Here, here's the question, though. Does it really matter? I mean, uh, I mean, how does and how does it matter? I'll give you an example. JP Morgan Chase, they're considered to have a fortress balance sheet. You know, Jamie Dimon, he talks about that all the time. I think that their, uh, you know, tier one capital is uh, is like 12 percent or something ridiculous. Um, so why does it matter that this SLR exists if they're completely overcapitalized relative to the the regulatory uh, statutes? That that's a great question, Ed. So actually, I think what you're quoting when you say that the J.P. Morgan is at is at 12 percent and that is extremely high is the common equity tier one ratio. That's based. That's a capital metric that's based on the amount of risk. So I don't think super safe assets. Um, like treasuries or Federal Reserve deposits count at all because there's no credit risk. And sure, there's interest rate risk, but most of the treasuries are extremely short term in nature. So there's really no risk at all. So you're right on the, the true risk-based capital metrics. But actually, when it comes to leverage-based capital metrics, such as the, the JP Morgan's um, SLR supplementary leverage ratio, in the fourth quarter, and I'm just reading from their latest report, they were at 6.9% um, for the, not 12%, 6.9%. And that was including the sort of la-la land, uh, candy land, magical land, uh, you know, rising on easy street of, of the SLR, ex ex excuse me, to the Treasury exemption. And they have a note saying that it actually would have been 5.8% had it not been for that. Um, and just to give people at home, um, the, the requirements are 3% for banks with assets over $250 billion, I believe. Um, and if it goes below 3%, then they they get cr cracked down on really quickly, and they can't issue dividends. They can't do all sort of the sort of stuff that they like to do. Um, Five percent for GSIBs, globally systematic important banks, and six percent if banks really want to have a good rubber stamp uh, that you know is is the official gold standard. So, with excluding the XLR ratio, J.P. Morgan is actually below that that six percent. Ed, so Ed, you're absolutely right on the the metric that really should matter, which 
this does not count treasuries at all. But if you do talk about these SLRs, then banks kind of JP Morgan, the Fortress balance sheet, it actually is below that that metric. Yeah, so, uh, in, interesting. You know, I mean, they're still above the metric. But let me, I, 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 as you were talking, I just uh, pulled up something. Here are two things from the 10Ks. Uh, one is JP Morgan Chase, the supposed fortress balance sheet. And then the other is Citigroup, who most people think is the weakest of the, the largest money center banks. Uh, here it says Citigroup from their 10K, they say that their temporary supplementary leverage ratio relief for bank holding companies commencing in the second quarter, allowing Citigroup to temporarily expand its balance sheet by excluding U.S. Treasury securities and deposits, uh, blah, blah, blah. Citigroup's reported supplementary leverage ratio was 7%, benefited by 109 basis points during the fourth quarter, meaning that without uh, this, uh, this benefit, they would have been at 5.91%. JP Morgan Chase, uh, um, by comparison, it was, would be at, was at 6.9%. They would have been at 5.8%. So those are levels, I think, that are low enough that if you get this torrent of issuance from the uh, federal, uh, you know, uh, from the treasury in terms of treasury bonds, then the question becomes, who's going to buy all those bonds when these banks, the ones who are the primary dealers, uh, they already have like ridiculously low uh, numbers, uh, according to this ratio that we're talking about. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. That's Absolutely. a fascinating yeah. question, big picture. I know we've gone uh, deep on this, a true deep dive into things that are happening right now. And for those of uh, you who are not bank regulators, uh, the big picture point here uh, is that we're on March 31st, this rule is going to be rolling off that allowed uh, banks to exclude, to exclude U.S. Treasury securities and deposits from their risk asset calculations. This makes uh, their risk positions greater. Uh, it makes them have uh, these ratios deteriorate when this removes. And Ed, to your question, this is a really interesting point. Uh, what happens when the issuance increases? Yeah, and let me just say that, you know, to me, I, I can't remember who, maybe I was talking to Jack about this earlier in the week, but it reminds me a lot of the whole uh, repo problem is, is, is that, you know, there are these other regulatory requirements hanging out there that you were not aware of. And then suddenly, you know, you think that it, it, the coast is clear and then bang, uh, right. they, they leap in the way. This is a, a perfect example of that. Yeah, and just to get back to the big picture here from something that Jack sent earlier today, uh, a Bloomberg article, a deep dive uh, on Jay Powell's comments, one quote stuck out at me particularly, and I'm just going to read it for you. The fundamental change in our framework is that we're not going to act preemptively based on forecasts for the most part, and we're going to wait to see actual data. I think it will take people time to adjust to that and to adjust to that new practice. And the only way we can really build credibility is by doing that. That seems to imply that they are going to let things run hotter for longer. And big picture again, because I know we went down deep into the weeds, 
This would be a tightening move to allow this rule to expire. So on the one hand, you have Jay Powell say, we're not going to act on forecasts, even if we see inflation, we're going to continue to let it run hotter for longer. And on the other hand, we're going to take these actions where we're removing some of these accommodative policies that strengthen banks' risk positions, two things moving in opposite directions. I'm not sure, how do you guys process all of that, contextualize it, and come up with something that makes sense? That's such a good point, Ash. I, I, I've got a few things to say uh, on that. The, the, the Wait, uh, Jack, before you get into that, I only have one thing to say, so let me say that now. And that is that Jay Powell is playing chicken with the market. That's all I have to say. That's a I think bombshell. That's I think that's absolutely right, Ed. Um, Ash, going back to what you said, so it, it is a, a tightening move of sorts. Some people are saying that you know, the Federal Reserve actually uh, increased its its reverse repo op, um, auction or offering more than double it, I actually think, um, to, to $80 billion. But the, the fact remains that it is a tightening thing. And just as Ed said a few minutes ago, uh, you have all of this uh, supply coming to the market from the Treasury to fund the stimulus package. You know. Next week, $62 billion of seven-year notes are going back on the market. If you recall, it was $62 billion of seven-year notes a month ago that started this whole uh, sell-off in bonds. Um, and you know, seven, seven is typically a lucky number, seven, seven Cs, um, seven wonders of the world. But seven-year notes, not so much. It's been a very unlucky number. So we'll see what happens uh, if the market can accept those treasuries, if the banks can accept those treasuries um, when, when it issues next week. You know, I uh, I worked uh, with Nouriel Roubini for a few years at Roubini uh, Global Economics, and I learned then one very important lesson, which is that I am not a deep thinker about macro issues. But when I think about this, I just try and simplify things, get out of the weeds for myself. You know, you have the natural rate of interest, uh, and then you have accommodative moves, uh, and you have moves that are tightening moves. And it seems to me like we're moving in two opposite directions here. I wonder what that signals. Is there something going on here uh, that I'm not catching? Yeah, I, I'm not sure where the uh, philosophical underpinnings are, where, where the economic underpinnings are for the Federal Reserve here. But ultimately, the answer I come up with is that a rate regime is something that we understand. Raising interest rates, lowering interest rates, you yeah. know, that that's par for the course. But once you get to zero, Right. You don't have that that lever. And so then you're just making stuff up. I mean, yeah. all of these central banks, they're using unprecedented monetary policy. And the reality is, is that they're as unpracticed in this as we are. They don't know what's going to happen. And we're hitting roadblocks left and right. Yeah. Uh, I think this is another case where there are going to be unintended consequences. And we'll just have to see what those are. You know, and I think that's exactly right. I think that's totally spot on. Uh, once you move away from the things that, that you and I understand, that the world understands, uh, and that, frankly, uh, people who are making credit decisions understand, things like loosening or tightening, raising or, or, uh, or lowering rates, expanding the balance sheet, all of these mechanics of the way markets function when the Fed intervenes and does these things. Now, they were very careful for long periods of time not to change things like reserve rate requirements and specifically targeted reserve rate requirements. This is tinkering with the mechanics of how things function under the surface. And I think you're exactly right. The most overused word of 2020 and 2021, unprecedented. These are unprecedented times. Uh, and understanding how these 
actual decisions play out? Very, very difficult to say. I'm reminded a few years ago when Bill Gross uh, wrote that piece uh, in the FT, and it was something like, um, we're moving from uh, Newtonian mechanics to Einsteinian mechanics. And I thought it was brilliant, perhaps unintentionally, uh, because nobody actually understands Einsteinian mechanics, right? I know I don't. Uh, anyone who's not a physicist probably doesn't get it. I just wonder, uh, does all of this complexity beneath the surface itself suggest risk? Yeah, I think that uh, it suggests that something is going to come out of left field and that the central banks, the monetary authorities, uh, fiscal authorities, they're going to have to be able to be nimble. They think that they have the tools and that they're nimble enough to deal with it and ultimately uh, they can get it done. But the bad things can happen. Yeah. And, you know, I know that we're getting to the end here because I'm just looking at the time and uh, it's it's I'm just thinking about this week uh, as we get towards the end, because to me, actually, it was a, 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 a not that volatile week. I know that we had the oil thing, but in general, I look at it as almost a calming down. In fact, if you look at the VIX, I think the VIX uh, went under 20 percent for the first time in a long yeah. time. Uh, don't you know, maybe I'm, I'm wrong, but, you know, look it up while we're talking. So. Ultimately, we are calming down. So I think it's interesting that you're asking the question. Yes, we're getting calm. The VIX is going down. We're going back to normal. But is this just a, a, a false dawn? Is something bad about to happen? You know, you're definitely right, Ed, and I know that because it went below 20 uh, when I was actually having a conversation with Tony Greer on Tuesday. And I watched it, and we talked about it as it actually crossed. It's an excellent point. Uh, and it is a, uh, a a frightening question. False dawn. It's a great it's a great title. <laughs> you know that makes me think of what Weston said to me on the daily briefing, perhaps a month or two ago, that the VIX is no longer the fear gauge; it's the greed gauge because so many of the options that are being bought are call options rather than put options. In other words, bullish bets rather than bearish bets. So it could be uh, Ed and Ash that the decline in the VIX just represents uh, that retail traders, institutional traders, are buying fewer call options on Tesla and, and other speculative names because they've seen that growth stocks have sort of hit, hit the wall. Um, I don't know if that is what's causing the VIX to decline, but I do know that it, it has happened, that uh, call options uh, volume has decreased, and that, that sort of bullish atmosphere um, in SPACs and in the derivatives markets for those tech names has, has calmed down a little bit. Yeah, by the way, before we call it a day for the week, we should point out, if you're not a Real Vision subscriber, uh, Weston Nakamura is doing great work on the exchange here at Real Vision, and it's something you should definitely check out. Uh, gentlemen, final thoughts uh, as we head off into the weekend. Yeah, so if I could add to my thinking about um, the canary in the coal month from Brazil and Turkey, I would also add to it the fangs. Uh, and uh, the rate rise uh, that we're going through. Because when you look at the S&P 500, which is a market cap weighted index, the fangs are a ridiculously large percentage of the index. I think it's like, you know, but if you take a, a number of them, not including Netflix, throw Netflix out, it's like 25% of the market cap of the entire index of 500 stocks. Um, when we're talking about rotation and we're thinking, that growth stocks are going to get whacked as a result of a yield curve steepening and the tenure going up, 
that means the fangs get hit. And if they're 25% of the market, there comes a point when uh, they're so large and, and they're getting whacked so much that you can't rotate into value enough to deal with the negatives uh, from those particular shares. So that has a potentially cascade effect because of ETFs, because of passive investing, et cetera. So that is also something to watch going forward. Final thoughts, Jack. Uh, well, Ash, I just have to say, I'm glad that I work at Real Vision and not Goldman Sachs, uh, because I was reading this report of a, a survey of working conditions among young analysts, so people my age working at Goldman Sachs. And uh, they asked, how many hours have you worked this past week? And the average answer was 105 hours. Uh, how many hours do you sleep on, on average per night? Five hours. On average, what time do you go to sleep? 3 a.m.? Uh, so I'm glad that I get to participate in the financial markets and sort of live in that world uh, while I, I you know, have a, can have a bet, much better life than my compatriots who are working at Goldman Sachs. Jack, let me ask you a question. You think the incentive when you're filling out a survey on a Goldman computer is to hedge up or down on those numbers? Probably up, because it'll make you look like a workaholic. Absolutely. Jack, Ed, thanks for joining us. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.